This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Ayana Young, and I welcome you to Unlearn and Rewild, where we explore radical ideas relating to earth renewal. Today we welcome back Peter McCoy, who speaks on behalf of the fungi, the most overlooked and misrepresented organisms in the web of life. A self-taught mycologist with 15 years of accumulated study and experience, Peter is an original founder of Radical Mycology, a grassroots organization and movement that teaches the skills needed to work with mushrooms and other fungi for personal, societal, and ecological resilience. Peter is the lead cultivation expert for the Amazon Micro-Renewal Project and Open Source Ecology, and the primary author behind Radical Mycology, a nearly 700-page book on accessible mycology and mushroom cultivation. Apart from his work with fungi, he is also a community organizer, street medic, zinester, artist, musician, lecturer, and teacher. Thanks for joining us on the show, Peter. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ayana. I'm super excited to be back. Yes, me too. And, you know, we covered a lot of material in our previous interview, which I really encourage people to go back and listen to as a foundation for today's interview. And there we talked about permaculture applications for fungi, microremediation, using mushrooms to clean up our messes, with an emphasis on nuclear fallout. We talked about the grassroots approach to mycology that puts the tools in the hands of communities. And we touched on cultivation and so much more. And since we talked, a lot has transpired. Notably, your much-anticipated first book, Radical Mycology, a treatise on seeing and working with fungi was published. So congratulations on that. And I must say laying my hands on it for the first time was truly an epic moment for me. And I imagine, of course, for you as well. So I'm wondering if you could share 
what motivated you to take on this book project and how the book diverges from other mycology texts out there? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I've been studying mycology for about 15 years. I started as a teenager just as a curiosity and one of my many side hobbies and eclectic things I was interested in. And it's something I've always stuck with. It's something that's always held my interest. And the more I've learned about it over the years, the more I've been fascinated, the more uh, I can't put it down. But it's really been a hard process to study it to any significant depth. You know, it took me many years to really realize how inaccessible the science it is. I feel like the way that knowledge is presented to us or just science is presented to us, you know, people that aren't in the scientific fields, we often get the sense that, oh, somebody's figuring these things out, everything, you know, so much in this day and age, we're in the information age, we, you know, the internet, with, with the internet, we can just figure out anything, we look up anything. But with mycology, that's very much not true. It's one of the least accessible sciences, one of the least accessible natural sciences, one of the least studied natural sciences, but also one of the ones with the most potential it's considered a neglected mega science. So mega science meaning it's huge. It has vast implications for uh, our human lives, for the life of the planet, for the life of everything on the planet. But very few people are looking at it. It's literally kind of dying in the West before it's even really begun. It's one of the youngest natural sciences. And this was a concept that I came across and just sort of came to realize and accept over the years that I wanted to learn this thing. I knew a lot of people that really wanted to understand fungi because they're so interesting. But there was no good resources to dive in. Very few books written for the layperson, most of them focusing on identification, a little bit about cultivation, which was often presented in sort of a difficult industrial way. Anything beyond that, beyond just mushrooms, other types of fungi, uh, their ecological importance, which is interesting, all this stuff was just not there or very, very poorly represented. So I came to that conclusion a few years ago and then just started realizing, okay, I have to read the primary literature. I have to read these textbooks. I have to wrap my head around the science even harder, which I was willing to do because I was held to it, but obviously realizing most people don't have that. And same thing, the more I learned on these technical ends, the more I dove into the complexity. Even then, I was even more engaged, more thrilled. So I knew that that's the only way to, the only way to get that information out was to translate it. And I did that a few years ago with a zine called Radical Mycology we talked about in the last talk, but uh, that was just a, a tiny primer and intro of what I knew eight years ago. Um, so a couple years ago, did a, a crowdfunding campaign to turn that small thing into a book. Originally, I thought it'd be about maybe 400 pages, but as again, when I started researching for the book and, and diving into even more literature, I found even more things I didn't know about. So many topics, so many concepts that I'd never even heard about regarding fungi. And I talked to a lot of people over the years and met people as I teach and travel. There was so much that had not come to the surface. And then as I worked on it, there were so many connections I was making, drawing between not just concepts within mycology, but I'm also very interested in many other topics, sociology, psychology, philosophy, history, cultural perspectives from around the world. And there were so many connections that I was able to draw based on my own experience and, and knowledge in regards to fungi that I had not seen written elsewhere that I thought was really pertinent, especially when trying to develop a dialogue around how mycology can influence our lives today and help address many of the issues in the world, which is sort of the underlying theme behind all of my work and the people that I work with. And so those are also the perspectives that I was not seeing represented in these very technical, very dry, scientific literature. And so I wanted to bring some life into these topics, put some relevance and context to them, 
but also hopefully some depth and some emotion to move people to feel something about fungi that we often are never given the chance to feel in our society where they're so often derided and pushed aside and ignored and mocked and ridiculed and all these kind of silly things when we consider how important they are in the environment and how ubiquitous they are. So there's a lot of motivating factors. I think I said in the preface, it was really a challenge to myself even as I thought about it more that I was literally just working through all the cycles of life and learning about them and seeing how fungi influenced everything as I was trying to synthesize this information for people. It was really mind-blowing for me, really life-changing, eye-opening. And as best I could, I tried to translate that and make it accessible. Uh, a lot of the book is reference in just kind of how-tos, so it's not it's not super dense in the way that you have to really study every page. Uh, most of it's there for later kind of reference and doing things. But in between all that, I'm trying to build the bridge and the connections and put, the, again, the relevance to it and, and introducing the whole book with all the context, the ecological context, the cultural context, and why these things are important today, why these skills are needed. Um, again, I wasn't seeing that you know, beyond the basic things of just growing mushrooms for food, growing natural medicine, which is obviously very great. But for me, it's much deeper than that. I think fungi are embedded in our cultural legacy, our, our human story, um, and most people don't know that. And I think there's many benefits to come from reintegrating with them to bringing them back into the human story today, along with all the natural processes and elements of our world, which many things about our contemporary society distances us from that, fungi perhaps being the most ostracized in many ways. So it's kind of a long answer to a simple question, but for me, it's, it, it was sort of a culmination of my life's work. A lot of my art and photography and, and other things are in there because it's something that I've held on to, I think, the longest in my life. Now, in order to make some sense of our innate attraction to mushrooms, let's trace back 
to the prehistoric cultural uses of fungi by cultures around the globe. What can we piece together about fungi in prehistory? And how has the role of fungi changed throughout the centuries? Well, the best documentation kind of hands down and where most people have looked towards as far as historical human uses and interactions with fungi is in Asia and specifically China where they just have really good documentation for five plus thousand years. But the fossil record, archaeological record, goes much further back than that and actually comes uh, seemingly out of the West, Western Europe, the Old World. As far as I've been able to come across what seems to be the oldest evidence of humans working with fungi is from about 18,700 years ago from Cantabaria, Spain, where just a few years ago a woman's body was uncovered in a cave and she was attributed to the Magdalenian culture, which is actually a relatively advanced culture. They were nomadic, so they're not recognized like the Sumerians are as a settled civilization, but they had relatively advanced art, uh, quite a fascinating culture, but they were nomadic. And it seems that she might have been a sort of an elite because she was buried in a very ceremonial way, adorned with a red paint and flowers. And the entrance to her cave was chiseled with a V-shape, which in old European symbolic language was meant to represent the female. And on her teeth were spores of two different types of mushrooms. We don't know what species they were. One was a gilled mushroom and one was one with pores, what we call a boli. Somebody's presented the idea that I like that perhaps it was the Amanita muscaria, that the gilled mushroom was perhaps Amanita muscaria. Certainly plausible, but there's thousands of species it could have been. But the fact that she was painted with this red paint is reflective of that mushroom. That's the red and white phanagaric, the Mario mushroom we all know. And that mushroom, when we look through the rest of history or much of history, that's the one that's been perhaps the most influential culturally in a lot of ways. It's a psychoactive mushroom. It's very different from the psilocybin mushrooms that people are familiar with today as the psychedelic recreational drug. The Amity muscaria was really the one, hands down, that influenced cultures and religions and customs throughout the world for thousands of years. So it's, you know, and when you look at it in that context, it is more interesting and perhaps slightly plausible that she was eating that mushroom. That's the oldest documentation. There are a few settlements from around Europe going back 11,000 years and older where it seems that these different cultures were using what we call the amadou mushroom, Fomis fomentarius or the tinder conch. This is one of a handful of species that burns slowly. It's, it's easy to ignite, um, can hold a flame, produces a very sweet-smelling smoke. Many cultures are doing that. You can actually take some of the tissue inside and make simple clothing and hats out of it like a felt. And so humans were in Europe were using that for at least 11,000 years. About 5,000 years ago, 5,500 um, a man named Otzi died and or was perhaps ceremonially buried in the Alps, just like the Red Lady from Spain that I just talked about. She's called the Red Lady because of the red paint. Um, Otzi, this guy in the Alps, might have been a, a high leader in his class as well, or his society, because he was, it's argued that he just died by accident, but he had so many strange things with him, it seems sort of unreasonable to cross mountains um, with all this stuff. So it seems to potentially been ceremonial, which also makes this story even more interesting because he, among his many uh, you know, tools, had two different types of mushrooms. One was Pyptopterus betulinus, the birch polypore, which he might very well have been using to treat his internal parasites. Um, this mushroom has really potent antiparasitic oils, and it was perhaps the only antiparasitic medicine for thousands of years in the old world. And he also had the amadou mushroom, the one I just talked about, the, the burning mushroom. And that mushroom is usually just said, oh, he was probably starting his fires with it or something. 
But what's also interesting about Otzi is that he had on his body tattoos that corresponded to acupuncture points for a certain meridian that would have been used to treat his arthritis that he clearly suffered from. But what's interesting about Otzi is he died about the same time the first publications about acupuncture meridian systems were produced in China. Where did he get that knowledge? Did it come from the East? Did it come from somewhere else? We don't really know. But it's usually assumed that that knowledge of meridians came from the East because that's where it's first written down. But Otzi had it on his body at the same time. So perhaps he was an inheritor of this knowledge from some sort of past that we don't understand. But what's also most people don't know is that this mushroom, the Amadou, the burning mushroom, was said by Hippocrates, the father of Western medicine, to be one of the best things to use for moxibustion, for heating up acupuncture points. Today we use mugwort in traditional Chinese medicine to warm these meridians and it stimulates energy flow. But in the past they would use this mushroom. Uh, today the Sami, the Laplanders, if what you want to call them of northern Scandinavia, still use it as a traditional practice for heating their meridians. Um, so what I propose in the book is perhaps knowledge of using these mushrooms medicinally as an energetic type medicine, perhaps vastly predated Otsi. Perhaps he was a carrier of this knowledge going back to the Magdalenian culture, we don't know. And I propose that he might have been using this mushroom not only to start its fires, but even to stimulate his meridian points. So, you know, these are different concepts. These are, these are some of the connections that I put in the book that I hadn't seen other people placing. And so if that's the story, perhaps our knowledge of mushrooms, perhaps even energetic medicine could have come from west to east. I think at the very least, the mushroom usage concept seems to have come from west to east. If the Magdalenian people, if the Red Lady wasn't using the mushroom she ate for food or for medicine, I would assume that within the you know 13,000 years between her and Otzi, that knowledge of edible and medicinal mushrooms did arise within whatever culture and was transmitted. So it's pretty significant, especially for any listeners of Western or of European descent, our history of with that goes back so far. And same in Asia, too. It wasn't started to be documented until about five, 6,000 years ago, but there it's incredibly well documented. I mean, hats are off to you know a lot of the old Chinese doctors and things like that that have been holding on to that knowledge and really refining it. In the Middle East and in Africa and things, the, the knowledge has been more oral, so it's just not really well documented, unfortunately. And so most of the books you read on ethnomycology, which is this history of human fungal relations, usually just doesn't even mention that, that significant part of the world. Um, but what is known is that some of the cultures there, like, say, what we call the Bushman or the Khan people, they would carry certain mushrooms as protection. Some mushrooms were used for in invisibility, uh, or they thought that it would induce invisibility when they were hunting. Some mushrooms, like the, the cramp balls, were brewed into different concoctions as a douche for um, infections in the birth canal. But there's very few of these interactions documented. In North Africa, in the Middle East, and also Mediterranean region, what we call desert truffles today. These are mushrooms that associate with desert plants and they form kind of large potato-like fungal bodies under, under the sand, under the dirt. Those foods are protein-rich foods, but they're also incredibly medicinal. And the Prophet Muhammad is actually quoted to talk about using them as an eyewash and saying that they're a gift from Allah. So it goes very far back in that culture, but again, just not really well documented beyond just a few citations, at least as far as I've come across. And then the uh, last thing I'll say is in Central America and South America, well, especially Central America, that's another huge part of the world that has a significant fungal history dating back to at least the Maya, if not the Olmec, which was sort of the, one of the first major civilizations in Mesoamerica. They were working with mushrooms probably as food today. The people in uh, Central America, especially Mexico, eat hundreds of species of mushrooms. You go to the markets there and, and many of the women are wildcrafting these mushrooms as a you know, generational practice. 
But going back to the psychoactive fungi, it seems that in Central America, many of these older cultures, perhaps the Olmecs, even starting again with the Amanita muscaria, working with that as a psychoactive mushroom, perhaps later transitioning through either during the Maya era or the Aztec era to psilocybin mushrooms. Mexico has the highest number of psilocybin-containing species per country in the world, and so they're very psilocybin-rich. So the Aztecs or the Maya figure that out sooner than later. Those mushrooms are more consistent than the Amanita muscaria, so they probably transition practices into working with that species. And it's, so it's a really rich history there, best documented with the Aztecs and when the conquistadors came. And then in South America, again, there's just really poor documentation. Much of that history, of course, in that part of the world is oral, apart from the conquistadors. And even what they wrote, there didn't seem to be a very strong mushroom practice there. They're, of course, working with other plants for medicine and psychoactive purposes. It really covers the gamut. And this is a huge aspect of mycology that is very poorly documented. We can say that about many things about mycology, but I'm very much interested in culture in many ways. And this aspect of ethnomycology, it's, it's underwhelming, or excuse me, it's overwhelming how underrepresented it is. And something I'm incredibly fascinated by, it's something that I was really stirred up more by doing the research for the book and something I want to study more in the near future. Yes, thank you for doing all that in-depth research to find these gems in history to trace back our human-fungi relations. And I've honestly been getting lost in this historical world. I have, I've been having all these visuals pop into my mind as you've been storytelling about these ancient cultures and what human-fungal relationships must have been like. It's really fascinating. As an interest in mushrooms has grown alongside the consciousness movements, some theories have emerged about fungi in the development of culture and human intelligence. In his book, The Food of the Gods, Terence McKenna wrote, I believe that the use of hallucinogenic mushrooms on the grasslands of Africa gave us the model for the religions to follow. And when, after long centuries of slow forgetting, migration, and climactic change, the knowledge of the mystery was finally lost. We in our anguish traded partnership for dominance, traded harmony with nature for rape of nature, traded poetry for the sophistry of science. In short, we traded our birthright as partners in the drama of the living mind of the planet for the broken pot shards of history, warfare, neuroses. And if we do not quickly awaken to our predicament, 
planetary catastrophe, end quote. You critique McKenna and you point to a contrasting theory by Julian Jaynes that mushroom use was more recent and arose from our disconnection from mystery and the subconscious realm. Where do you stand on that argument? McKenna's thought is a pretty popular one, and I think it comes, the popularity of it largely comes from people that are initially already very fascinated by psychoactive fungi. They are, the experience on them is quite compelling and quite interesting and quite unusual. And so there's a lot to speculate about its importance, its, its significance, why these fungi even exist, etc. And a lot has been written on that, a lot of speculation. And Terence McKenna's idea about this human evolution, that it was this sort of growth spurt for our brain when we ate psychedelic mushrooms, has been broken down by other researchers showing flaws in it as far as a scientific theory and sort of why it falls apart as a, as a truth. If you're trying to present it as a true scientific theory, it doesn't really hold water. Um, but it's an interesting thought. So to contrast with that and also to provide a very, I think, much deeper and much richer and a much more honorable perspective of human capacity is one that Julian James presents about that the altered states of being and altered means of perceiving and receiving information that are different from our everyday beta state um, mind awareness, mental awareness that we usually hold to navigate our, our day-to-day civilized world, that's only one means and that the alternate routes have come in a vast array of directions. Many cultures have built many means to access altered states Psychoactive plants and fungi have just been one of them, but our ability to enter these states and receive information and to perceive a future where our artworks can have impact, you know, generations later, these kinds of more complex and abstract thinking very likely goes back thousands of years, many years before McKenna even proposes his initial idea. So, so it's hard to say when those states initially arose, you know, we can point to the cave paintings in La Salle, France, where some of the first abstract cave paintings came out, and it's been argued that that was in a sudden outgrowth of humans accessing altered states. 100,000 years went by between the development of modern humans and our first creative expressions, our first artistic representation, uh, our representative art, I should say. And it kind of all came about at once. And the thought is, how did that happen? What was going on? And there's speculation. And one of the ideas is that somehow somebody developed the means to access altered states. And that could have been through psychoactive mushrooms, but it could have been through fasting, through uh, drumming, through dancing, all these alternative practices through spinning. It's hard to really say. What I think, though, what Julian Jaynes gets at, and I think what's more profound about all these concepts is that we have this innate capacity to access these states with or without you know, substances, without chemical inputs. And what Jaynes presents is that this was perhaps a very innate component of human cultures and way of life for the vast history of human existence, and that only perhaps 3,000 years ago, when we became incredibly more civilized, more industrial, more machine-dependent, less abstract and symbolic thinking, we transitioned out of that intuitiveness, that connection to our right side of our brain, our higher selves, our subconscious, whatever you want to call it, our knowing. And that was just increasingly silenced and shut out in preference for the, the ego mind, the conscious, literal, logical, analytical thinking that's so touted today. When that transition was happening, there was probably a breakdown in society and, and probably a lot of what we would consider mental disorders today, people having really difficult time dealing with this significant transition from hearing, you know, quote unquote, voices in their heads, again, this sort of deeper knowing and being in touch with that, 
and as time went on, trying to figure out ways to reconnect with that, and that the use of psychoactive substances was sort of this bandage to try to keep that connection to this innate human capacity. And when I first read that, I found that really, really profound, and it really spoke to me. I, I'm an artist, and I know what it's like to be in that sort of the right side of my brain when everything goes away and something's coming through me, right? Or just something, it's another part of yourself. And I feel like many artists can uh, resonate with that as a feeling. And even if you're not a traditional artist, you know, even in the garden, when you're in your zone, you know what it's like the world falls away and you're sort of in this different place of quiet and inner uh, reflection and ideas come up. And that's when we have these brilliant moments in our in-between state, right? And so many advances in science didn't come through just analytical processing, a lot of them is by mistake. Some of them is when you're in that half asleep state, almost falling falling into your dreams is when you have the realization that the benzene ring looks like a you know, coiled serpent or something like that. So I, I think there's quite significance to that aspect of our minds. We all have it. We've all experienced it in different ways, but it's so overlooked and undervalued. And I think it's an incredible thought to say, well, what if that was a significant portion of our day-to-day existence? How would our culture look different? How would our lives be different? How would we treat each other differently? How would we treat ourselves differently? I think that's something we can still tap into. I think it's still very much a part of the human condition, just something we need to intentionally cultivate these days because there's so many things trying to silence it. And sure, mushrooms and, and these other substances can kind of point in that direction and say, hey, there's other options possible. But I always caution against putting all the emphasis into these externalities. You know, Why not cultivate the internal capacities and strengthen ourselves um, so that we're not dependent on on external inputs in whatever form, and I think that you know your own mental state is one of the most significant ones to have control over. So yeah, uh, James's book is great. It's a it's a pretty compelling read. He was a Stanford psychologist, so he he wasn't just some random person. He had a pretty solid background in these topics. Well, it's enticing to think about having that kind of mental mastery for sure, considering we all suffer from a cultural legacy of suppressed intuition. And stemming from that kind of mental handicap, we see a deep suppression of nature, of life's creative feminine powers. And I'd like to hear about how fungi can help us perceive and counteract that dark force in our world. As far as psychoactive mushrooms go, which I know isn't your question exactly, but as many people I've known, myself included, your eyes open, your life changes when you have a pretty significant experience on psychoactive substances, whether it's a fungus or something else. These things open your capacities. They make you feel things differently and perceive things differently. And, and that can be really, really profound. And I know and it is for many people. So I, I don't, I never want to belittle that or, or say that it's not valuable. I just always want to paint the larger picture so that we can broaden our horizons and challenge ourselves to go further. And along with that, and then, yeah, more generally, like you're asking about fungi, how can they influence our health and healing and even just, again, perception of environment, perception of nature, perception of our relationship to nature is incredibly significant. The fungal kingdom or you know, fungal queendom, as I call it in the book, is the largest group of multicellular organisms. Bacteria, we can't really count them. They're huge. But as far as the bigger things go, fungi vastly outnumber animals and plants. Um, they're everywhere in the environment. You know, we can talk maybe more about their ecology, but they influence everything around us. They're filling every plant. They're probably communicating with each other in this incredibly complex um, network. And most people completely ignore them. Don't even don't even think about them because they're so off our radar. We never hear about them. Never learn about them. So the, 
first my question is, what does that mean to be disconnected from and ignore and even fear one of the biggest aspects of our natural environment? Everything around us is influenced by fungi, everything. So that's a pretty, I think, profound question for me to ask myself. And then I wonder, well, what would it mean to integrate with fungi? What are the lessons that can come from that? Not just the benefits of food and medicine and these more sort of immediate topical things. What are the deep implications of reintegrating with our environment, uh, reintegrating with ecological webs and not just, say, one plant or one mushroom or one animal, but seeing everything as the whole, which is what fungi do. They, they create the whole. They maintain the whole. And when you study them, you see the whole for its part. You see the mycelium for the hyphae. Going back to perhaps ancestral perspectives on fungi, this is one aspect that really came through strong for me as I studied deeper and deeper in, in writing with the book and thinking about this is that, in my opinion, fungi are sort of the grand symbols of health and regeneration. They are the greatest teachers on the planet and they in so many ways show us how to be in better balance. And everything they do ecologically is to create both balance and harmony but also change and lack of stagnation and, and complexity. And it's this really incredible almost paradox that they create but in this wonderful balance and it's the yin and yang of nature, you know, consistency versus change. Fungi do both these things. But what I propose in the book is that historically, going back to the cultural aspect, that humans probably perceived this and picked up on it and figured these things out. What I didn't mention is that the mushrooms, like with the Amanema scaria and even other ones, in many cultures, historically, mushrooms were only for the elite. So Otzi and maybe the Red Lady were, were the elites and they were buried. And that's very fitting because in ancient Egypt and in many other cultures, only the elite, the high classes could touch mushrooms. So why, why is that? It's not just because they're tasty. You know, or like hard to pick. I mean, saffron flowers are hard to pick, but, you know, people had access to it as far as I'm aware. So I think there's something to it. I think there was something deeper and richer that we just are never really shown in the books that have been out there. And, and what I draw in the book is these connections and pick apart the connections that have been made and documented between fungi and other aspects of our environment. So really common ones you find around the world are these rich connections between mushrooms and toads. So the concept of the toadstool. So why do we have that term? Most toads don't eat mushrooms. Many countries that call mushrooms toadstools don't even really have frogs or toads there. Why is this name used? Well, what I came across in researching, I started looking, well, what's up with toads? What's the history of toads and the cultural importance of toads? Turns out that toads are an incredibly rich symbol of 
life regeneration. When you study toad and frog life cycles, you can kind of understand where that symbolism came from. But in short, they sort of embodied sex, fertility, uh, rebirth. Okay, so they're connected with mushrooms. Mushrooms are also connected with lightning quite significantly. Many cultures around the world always said that when there was a lightning storm, this or this species would come up. Well, why is that? Lightning is this regenerative, powerful force in the sky that's literally sort of seen in some cultures to be sort of inseminating the earth, right, with this lightning strike, this energy from top to bottom. So that's an interesting, powerful force. And then when we look at different goddesses that were associated with mushrooms in different cultures, we see connections there again with, say, the mushrooms, the, the woman, toads, uh, regeneration, rebirth. One of the best examples is Hecate, which is a Greek goddess, and she probably came from Heket, which is an Egyptian goddess, a toad-headed goddess associated with death, rebirth, regeneration, decay, recomposition, decomposition. And she probably transitioned into Hecate in ancient Greece. And Hecate was the triple-faced crone, mother, and child goddess um, all in one. So she could see in all directions. She perceived everything. She was considered the queen of ghosts, the mother of witches, she was the one associated with decomposition. She was the one that brought life into the compost piles, but also heavily connected with mushrooms. She was the one that was the most celebrated at what we call the Eleusian Mysteries. These were secret rites of passage in ancient Athens where people would take a psychoactive brew, perhaps made out of a fungus. And on one of the last nights of this 10, I think it was a 10-day ceremony, they would have the Night of Hecate where they would eat honey and mushrooms as central elements in this feast. So she's richly connected in these concepts of, you know, Spiritual rebirth, physical rebirth are found in many cultures I could detail further. But I think what it gets to is this idea that fungi today are so often presented as you know bad, as killers, as pathogens, as you know, the word fungus literally means that I kill or I make death. But what they're really doing when we look at the cycles of life is of course death leads to more life. And fungi are there on both sides of that cycle. They do kill things, they cull. They cut away the excess, they create the balance, they get rid of the disease. Some things die in that process. And on the flip side, they create soil, they create new life. They support all that life in every step of its process from its roots up through its leaves and inside of our bodies and inside of the bodies of most other animals on the planet. Fungi are life and death. They're flip sides of both coins. And I believe that many cultures in history probably picked up on it. Some of them might have had a misconception of it. Some cultures still today, traditional cultures still fear fungi. Some of them, of course, fully embrace them, as we said. And so kind of closing up the thought is how has that impacted us today in the West where we are sort of the most distance from fungi? Again, I think it can come from this Julian Jaynes perspective where more broadly we were shutting down and distancing ourselves from nature through independence on machinery and the alphabet versus the goddess. Leonard Schlein talks about the idea that when we created writing systems, we lost symbolic thinking. We lost sort of that more intuitive sense as well. Many things came along with it. And I think in that similar vein, as we became more industrial, we not only came to fear nature because it's so unpredictable, not controllable like our mechanized societies, and fungi are the ultimate epitome of that. Wild mycelium is incredibly unpredictable in many ways. Fungi come up anywhere, often associated with death, which is scary to the civilized person who doesn't know how to be in touch with the patterns of nature and the cycles of nature. And so fungi embody both unpredictability, but also predictability in a complex way. For me, those are the, some of those profound implications. That was actually that, that topic I was just discussing and where I write about in the book. That was my favorite part of the whole book to write and research about. I mean, many of those skills and things, of course, are a benefit, but that's the stuff that really stirs me because it has such profound implications about our just everyday awareness and relationships um, 
to not only fungi but to ourselves and, and everything around us. And the fungi as central elements in that are, I think, again, some of the greatest teachers to show that way. dedicated a generous portion of the book to the connections between fungal ecology and human social dynamics and structures. How could we be more enlightened sociologists by studying fungi and mycelial webs? I'm thinking of how they're keyed into the environment and they act for the well-being of all. They evolve and change freely. They store water. They work in closed-looped systems in short, they benefit life in contrast with most human activity. Yeah, and I mean, even more abstractly, one of the things that people, I think, get pretty quickly when you start to learn about fungi is their underground network, 90 plus percent of their true body of a mushroom is what's called a mycelial network. It's a distributed web of tissue that goes through the soil or through the wood. And that's really what the fungus is in many ways. That's where it spends the vast majority of its life. So when we talk about mushrooms, for me, it's we're actually talking about mycelium. With, with most fungi, the vast majority of fungi uh, live in a mycelial state for most of their existence. So I have a chapter in the book talking about these relationships that you're speaking on called the mycelium is the message because the mycelium is what the fungus is. and It's where all the activity happens. And when we study that and look at it abstractly and metaphorically, there's a lot of connections we can make and sort of nice discussions that can come between those patterns and how the mycelium interacts in the environment does all these impressive and profound ecological functions and how we can implement that patterning into our human day-to-day -day existence. So people get this. So distributed network, obviously, there's a lot of parallels between the Internet, between um, distributed social um, 
egalitarian structures where information and resources and even power is more or less evenly distributed. And that's something that I think a lot of us, probably a lot of your listeners could uh, get with. And that was one of the things that I got early on as well, something that shines through quite clearly. But as you study the mycology or study the mycelium even deeper, again, I think there's other layers that, that expose themselves. One example being that when we look at a mycelial network, so mycelial network can be huge. It can span hectares. You know, vast forests can be one giant common mycelial network connecting thousands of plants together, distributing nutrients between them, probably communicating in ways we've yet to fully interpret, doing so much to maintain the environment. But, and that's profound. But when we look at every single tip of that network, what we call a hyphal tip, every individual little thread, because this is like a giant web of microscopic filaments of tissue, every tip in that web is essentially autonomous. Um, the mycelium is very smart. It's not going to produce, say, the same digestive compounds on the whole network or the same defensive compounds everywhere because different parts of that giant web are eating different things and defending against different things. So it's only going to produce uh, what it needs to in, in each space. It's very energy efficient. And so when we look at our day-to-day existence, you know, every human is a hypha, but we often don't recognize our autonomy. We don't necessarily always recognize our individual power to make the decisions that craft the world immediately around us, and not only to deal with immediate acute struggles and things like that, but even long-term planning, which is what I think fungi do probably in an abstract way we don't understand. And having that, I think it's so important, and fungi reflect that, that every tip has the autonomy to make these decisions to do what it needs to survive. But clearly, it does feed back into and connects with the the whole, not only the whole web, but also the entire environment because the web influences everything. So it's the same with us. You know, every individual connects with its society. You can't run from culture forever. You can't run from, you know, your past forever. It's always going to be there. So you work with it. You embrace it. You find a relationship, a balance with it, and then you also recognize how that society influences the rest of the world and how you are contributing to that. Everybody is contributing to culture and history and the future. So. That's a pretty profound one when we look closer at it and the importance of every individual um, hypha and every individual human. But even more abstractly, mycelial networks embody concepts in systems theory and chaos theory and just general ideas that everything's connected and we also can't chart it all. And so it can be a bit overwhelming but also quite you know profound that the universe is so chaotic and random but things happen and work out and things move forward. And recognizing that and embracing that is just a natural part of life. So people can have existential moments or feelings of being out of control. And, you know, that's when you become a bit of a Taoist or you try to. The mycelium embodies this Taoist flow that everything is a distributed web. What the Taoists actually called Li and saw as the full embodiment of the Tao was this distributed branching thing that we see in cracked mud, in water streaks, in muscle tissue, in tree bark. This branching web pattern is found throughout nature mycelium fully embodies it and again I think expresses that that kind of chaos that webbing that thing that we can't really linearly box in and categorize has a place it's inherent and you're better served to embrace it and flow with it as best you can than try to control and confine and restrict it which is what much of science does today and we're obviously seeing a lot of negative outcomes of that because it's very anti-nature very antithetical to how uh, the world around us works and there's a lot of arguments that some of our categorization of natural things need to be renamed because we, we don't recognize the ecological significance through the ways we name, even just what, we, what words we use to describe the world around us is irreflective of how things actually are. And again, fungi gently and consistently push us to see those connections, to see that webbing.
soft rain, pattering gently, not raging in torrents, but secretly whispering in answer to each other's urgent call, rescuing our spirits, souls from precarious ridges, canyon rimmed and night entombed. Then the morning of our new life should shower in rainbows. But if rooted in the unfilling quicksand of the troubled past, we hesitate to move closer to tenderness. And if deafened by the cacophony of the rain and chaos, so much so that we only hear the fading echo of our awakening calls and come as night falls in a vacuum just to fill a void. It is better to not come at all. Love like lodestars pulls us together toward our eclipses and equinoxes or else like shooting meteors speeding by tangentially to flame and fall burning to ember leaving so little essence to remember if we come like rain freely with a downpouring of smiles and our tears running breathlessly in answer to each other's call then come we must or else we should wish for each other the dawn of brighter sun While humanity is limited to strict binaries for reproduction, you know, male-female, gender is an area where we might be able to apply some of the lessons of the fungal queendom. The topic of sex and gender in mycology is really fascinating. Speaking of not boxing things in, some fungi are pansexual, with thousands of mating types or genders. What's the biological reason for this, and how could we adopt some of that brilliance culturally, if not biologically? Well, again, yeah, I mean, this is just, this is one of the many topics where fungi are just so profoundly different than everything else and so compelling. Um, one of them is fungal sex. Fungal sex is significantly more complex than the animals, plants, and bacteria. They have, within the fungal queendom, there are, you know, innumerable means for mating. Um, many even within just sort of broad categories or phyla of the fungal kingdom, different species within there can all have quite complex and different forms of mating. So, you know, within animals, we all more or less procreate in, in a relatively similar way. Of course, like sea creatures have different methods, but land animals, it's pretty, pretty common practice. Um, at least amongst mammals, I guess I could say. Within even the mushrooms or, you know, other types of fungi, there's a huge range of just methods to go about swapping gametes 
you know, swapping genetics around. Within the mushrooms, though, where I'd say probably the most research has gone into for purposes of cultivation and, and obviously ease of study as they're big, we find a huge range. So real quickly, mush mushrooms reproduce. They produce a bunch of spores. Each spore has half the genetics of the parents, kind of like a sperm and an egg. And they go into the environment, and two of them that are compatible need to find each other, and their mycelium will fuse together, and then at that point, they'll be genetically whole. Um, <clears throat> The, the mating occurs through chemical signaling. There's no genitalia with mycelium or with spores. So they only recognize each other through pheromones. These pheromones can be very similar to, if not identical to, the, the pheromones we produce as animals. And also they have the same receptors. So there's a huge, a very close connection there going back to our common ancestry. They recognize each other through these chemical signaling and, and, and mate um, along the way. And, oh, and I should say that for some species there can be... Uh, say four different sexes, sometimes even just two, but sometimes four different sexes or mating types as we call them, basically different combinations. Uh, again, they're, the way that they recognize each other and the genetics of it, I won't get into the details, but it's just more complex than animals. That's why they can have multiple mating types. Some species there's eight, some there's 16. One species in particular, the, one of the most globally distributed mushrooms, Schizophyllum commune or the split gill, a highly medicinal mushroom that's used for cervical cancer in Japan, uh, has over 23,000 mating types. So it's one of the most sexually promiscuous and also successful species out there. So 23,000, what does that mean? It can mate with over 98% of the other spores in its environment of the same species, which lends itself to greater um, adaptability. Part of the reason that fungi do this is their spores can travel on air currents across whole oceans, land in totally different environments than where they were originally produced. And that might be on a different type of food in a different climate. And having this huge genetic diversity gives them greater resilience and ability to rapidly adapt. They also have very short life cycles, or they can, which also speeds up evolution. So having this great genetic and quote-unquote gender diversity leads to greater, uh, greater ability to adapt to new circumstances and to greater reflect the environment around yourself. And, and nothing, as far as I'm aware, has, again, outside the fungal kingdom, has such complexity. How humans can reflect on that, I think one of the interesting things, and my friend Willoughby Ravelo has a nice a little essay in the book talking about not so much that, but just how within the fungal kingdom, especially amongst mushrooms, there are habits that really closely mirror human sexual patterns. So there's close parallels to homosexuality. So two mating types can come together and they can never reproduce, they can never produce sexual offspring, but they can live a happy life and coexistence and be really successful and, you know, build a home essentially. Um, you can have polyamorous fungi where instead of just two, you can have three or four, or perhaps even more species coming together to form the mycelial network. What he doesn't talk about in the book, but something I sort of thought about later was you can also have a mushroom. So a mushroom that we see that we pick and we eat and stuff that's just condensed mycelium. It's not different tissue, even though it looks very different than the white stuff underneath a rock or log. You can have, and normally that mushroom is just the condensed mycelium of one of these networks, but you can actually have up to nine different networks coordinate together to form a single mushroom, which is pretty incredible when you think about it. They're basically fusing together in this, well, they're not really fusing, they're weaving together to form this mushroom. And maybe that has some sort of parallel, I don't know, between... I guess polyamorous stuff or, I don't know, sort of a short-lived sexual encounter amongst multiple people. Um, but fungi do this and it's all to their success and benefit. 
and it doesn't seem to be detrimental and it, perhaps it has functions for the fungus or even the environment that we don't understand. So again, you know, science is so linear and so reductionistic that if we don't understand it right off the bat, you know, it's often dismissed or shelved until some sort of theory is developed that simplifies the thing. But maybe these, these patterns in fungi have a higher purpose. If anything, the, the metaphor there and the sort of the reflection on human patterns is, is nice to see that it's not some anomalous thing that people might say that humans do certain activities. We see these things all in various ways throughout nature. Sounds of people talking, words of blue and gray, smells of doors and windows, closed against the day, sweet smell of the pines, tall western cedar, drifting on the wind, through the mountains like a river. Hey everyone, this is March Young. That was part one of our interview with Peter McCoy here on Unlearn and Rewild. We'll be back soon with part two. I hope you've enjoyed the music. We heard Cult of Youth doing New Old Ways. We heard the songs and invocations of Maria Sabina in a Masatek mushroom ceremony. Garifuna singing and drumming from the 1952 album The Black Caribs of Honduras. Patti Smith sang Waiting Underground, and Sarah Webster Fabio sang If We Come As Soft As Rain. Theme music is Like a River by Kate Wolf. Please visit us at unlearnandrewild.org. Sign up for the Mobilized Newswire and make a donation. Thank you. Like a river